we conducted a church-wide survey during the summer, and I'll, I'll share that survey with you, the results of that survey with you next week. But if you took the survey, and hundreds of you did, and it was well represented between the three worship services and representative of the demographics of our church. But if you recall taking the survey, one of the last questions I asked was, are you willing to do whatever it takes to reach one more person with the gospel of Jesus? And many of you said, yes, you're ready. Now, others said, yes, but I want to know what that means. I'm not really sure about what that means. And I think even some might have been honest enough to say no. Well, I want to tell you this morning what that statement means. In fact, if you've been here for long, you've heard me make that statement, that we as a church are willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person with the good news of Jesus Christ, that he loves them, that he died, and he rose from the dead for them, and he can forgive them of their sin and give them eternal life. If you've ever come to our Next Steps membership class in the 21 years I've been your pastor, you have heard me make that statement in fact, this week as I was watching the news, I, I saw that Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines decided to cancel a Caribbean cruise scheduled for this weekend. It was going to be a seven-day cruise. But they decided that the mission of Adventures of the Sea should shift from being a luxury ship to a rescue ship. And so they put this Adventure of the Sea into service and instead of 3,144 passengers just sitting back enjoying the luxury of a cruise, they went to San Juan, Puerto Rico and picked up over 1,700 evacuees and said by the time it is said and done with the three islands, they will have picked up over 3,000 evacuees. In fact, the cruise line delivered more than 25 pallets of medical supplies, 29,571 gallons of water, 13,050 pounds of animal and pet supplies and food, 9,355 gallons of milk, 7,000 pounds of ice, 110,500 garbage bags, 4,200 rolls of toilet paper, 450 power generators, and 30,504 batteries to two islands. The whole mission of that ship went from being a cruise ship to a rescue ship. And as I read about that, I thought, how often it is that I sometimes look at the church more like a cruise ship than a rescue ship. Sometimes, I'm just going to be honest, as your pastor, I feel like a cruise ship director. That is my job to make sure that when you come aboard, that the entertainment is lively, that the food and the coffee is good and plentiful, uh, that there are services for all ages, and there's child care that you can enjoy. Now, we don't gamble, other than those of you that gamble on how long the sermon is going to go. But, we don't, but, but as a cruise director, I feel like it's my job to make sure when you, you leave that you say, Oh, that was good. I enjoyed the music, and I felt better. And, and, and listen, there's nothing wrong with that. I, I, I want you to come and to believe that this is a church that is making a difference in your life and making a difference in your family. So I'm not saying there's something wrong with wanting you to be blessed by who we are and what we do as a church. 
But folks, I believe with all of my heart that the number one identity of a local church ought to be that of a rescue ship, not a cruise ship. If we are not careful, even we church members will start looking at the church from the lens of what the church can do for me. And we leave and we evaluate on a scale of 1 to 10 what we like and what we didn't like and how it compares to the cruise ship or the church down the road. And if we're not careful, we will forget that our mission that brought us all together was to go and tell everybody else the good news that we have discovered, to tell others about how we have been rescued from our sin and how they too can be rescued to a life of love with God for eternity. It's our job to go and rescue people from a Christless eternity. And even before that, from a life that they're living without knowing the intimacy of love from God and His strength and His power and His hope. Listen, folks, we're here to be a, a rescue ship more than a cruise ship. Now, the reason I say that to you this morning is because Often, whenever we think about rescuing people and reaching people with the good news of Jesus' love, we realize we've got to do some things that we wouldn't normally do for people who are already on board. You know, a lot of things that we do as a church, we don't do for me, we don't do for you. We do so that we can relate the gospel to our culture in a way that they can understand. And often there's pushback from Christians whenever a church starts doing that. When a church says, listen, we're going to be willing to change our methods if necessary to tell people about Jesus in a way that they can relate to. We'll never compromise the message, but we're willing to change our methods if necessary. And people start pushing back on that. It gets them out of their comfort zone. They start making statements like, we've never done it that way before, or you're just compromising with the world, and uh, what about me, and, and this is the way I think it ought to be done. But if we're going to really be a church willing to do whatever it takes, short of sinning, to reach one more person with the gospel of Jesus, then it's going to call all of us out of our comfort zone and be willing to change methods if necessary, but the message never. Now, open your Bibles, if you haven't already done so, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23. Some of you already have the app open, and our church app will have today's message, the scriptures, and the uh, three points I want to share with you today. There's even a place in the app for you to take your own notes, and then you can save those for future reference if you'd like to. The app is free, so if you want to download the app, do that. But 1 Corinthians chapter... 9 verses 19 through 23, we, we hear the Apostle Paul, one of the greatest missionaries the church has ever produced, affirms how everything he does is motivated out of a desire to glorify God and to reach as many people as possible with the good news of Jesus Christ. That he is wanting to win as many converts to faith in Jesus as possible, and he's willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person. Now, Paul wrote this letter that we call 1 Corinthians from the city of Ephesus in the Roman province of Asia Minor. He's writing probably A.D. 53, 54, 55. We're not exactly sure the exact year, but it's somewhere there in those early 50s that he's writing this letter. Now, previously, Paul had gone to the Greek city of Corinth, and he, along with two of his friends, a husband and a wife couple named Aquila and Priscilla, 
and they had shared the gospel of Jesus. Christ died for you, was buried, he rose from the dead on the third day, and if you'll believe in him, you'll have forgiveness of sin and eternal life. And many Corinthians believed this message and had become followers of Jesus. And a new church had been formed in that prosperous uh, port city of Corinth. But later, Paul gets word that things aren't going so well in the church. The Christians in the church are arguing with each other. There's divisions that have crept into the church over petty issues. There's sexual immorality in the church. There is social snobbery where the Corinthians are looking down on people who are not like them. And Paul writes this letter to address all of these problems. And the reason he's addressing these problems is because the church is not being the witness in the city of Corinth they need to be to tell other people about Jesus, that their sin is harming their witness to people that need to know about Jesus. And so Paul then says, I'm going to tell you how I conducted myself when I was with you and how I conduct myself wherever I go. And he gives us three of his missionary methods, if you will. And these are three methods that we need to employ. No, in fact, we will employ as Fort Caroline Baptist Church to reach more people with the good news of Christ. I want you to notice first... He tells us in verse 19, he says, I will abandon my rights in order to reach more people for Jesus. That I have rights, that there are things that I can freely do, but I give up my rights and I give up my freedom. I give up my preferences and my privileges in order to go and reach more people for Jesus. He puts it this way in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. And why does Paul do this? Why does Paul say, I'm free from all men, but I enslave myself to all men? That I might win more of them. I want to win them to Christ. I want to convince them to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I'm free. I can live my life how I want to live it. But I want to be indebted. So I voluntarily enslave myself to all people so that I can share the gospel with them. Now, Paul has just declared earlier in the chapter that we're reading that he does not take a salary for his preaching ministry. He says a minister has a right to receive a salary, that it's it's a good thing if a person is a minister, especially if they labor in the word, to be cared for and supported because it is an honest work. But Paul says, I personally have chosen not to take a salary. Instead, he was a tent maker uh, by trade. And he could support himself by working during the day. And then he would minister uh, and share the gospel and evangelize and travel uh, at other times. So he says, I'm not encumbered upon anyone. I'm not indebted to anyone. No one pays my salary. And he says, but even though I'm free from all men, I enslave myself to all men so that I might win more of them. Now, Paul goes to the lengths of telling us he doesn't take a salary, even though he had the right to take a salary, because he knew that there were critics who would say, he's only in it for the money. He's only doing this for gain. And then he also wanted to set an example to many of these new Christians in Corinth who had left their pagan religion and accepted Jesus as Savior, that Christians should be known as people who work and don't just live off the generosity of other people. And so he's doing this for two reasons. 
Paul's basically saying, listen, I'm not in the ministry for the cash. I'm in it for conversions. I'm not in it for the pay. I'm in it for people. I don't preach the gospel for a salary. I preach it for souls. That's what motivates Paul. Now listen, many pastors in many churches will say, we want to reach more people for Jesus. But let's be honest, when you dig a little deeper, the reason they want their church to grow is there will be more people in the seats who can put more money in the offering plate. Their motive is not because Jesus died for these people and we've got the best news the world has ever heard and we want as many people to hear it and to believe it. No, they have ulterior motives. And my heart and your heart ought to be motivated, number one, out of a desire to see as many people come to faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior and nothing else. Paul was more concerned about seeing as many people as possible come to faith in Christ than he was his own personal rights. And may we learn to abandon our rights in order to reach people who are far from God. Now, the second missionary method that he mentions, you'll see in the next few verses, and that is, I will adapt my methods. I will adapt to my methods. Paul's not only saying, uh, I will abandon my rights, but I will change methods if necessary, depending on the person I'm talking to, or the group of people I'm talking to, or or the culture in which I am uh, dealing. He puts it this way, verse 20, to the Jews... And he's going to give us examples. He's going to give us an example of how he relates to Jewish people. Then he's going to give us an example of how he relates to Gentile people. And then he's going to give us an example of how he relates to Christians who have weak consciences regarding certain practices. So here he starts with the Jews. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, he's still talking about Jews because they they place themselves under the Mosaic law of the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments, that this is the way of my salvation. He says, to those under the law, I became as one under the law. And then he says, parenthetically, though not being myself under the law. Paul says, I've been saved from that. I've recognized the law could never save me. Trying to keep the Ten Commandments would never work because I can't keep them. No one can keep them perfectly. I'm no longer under the law. I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus. He says, but when I'm with Jews, I live like a Jew. When I'm with these Jews who put themselves under the law and they're very strict about keeping the dietary laws and keeping the ceremonial laws and observing certain holidays and holy days, when I'm with them, I go along. Why do I go along? that I might win those under the law. Now, what's an amazing thing about this is Paul was a Jew. Paul, when he says, when I'm with the Jews, I become as a Jew, he was a Jew. Remember, he declared in Philippians 3, verses 5 through 7, about his pedigree as a Jew. He said, he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. Paul says, I was the epitome of what it meant to be a conscientious Hebrew. But Christ saved me by his grace, not by religion. But when I hang out with my Kinsmen, according to the flesh, the Jewish people, I relate to them on a level they can understand. I go into the synagogue. 
Because he was a Jew, he could go into the synagogue. He could open up the scriptures. He could read the scriptures and preach the Old Testament scriptures to them and say, listen, this Messiah that the Old Testament kept promising would come has come. His name is Jesus. Let me show you how Jesus fulfilled all of these promises of the Old Testament. And he would try to win as many Jews as possible for Christ. And so he would adapt his methods if he were with Jewish people. In fact, according to Acts chapter 16, verse 3, in one occasion, Paul wanted to take a young man named Timothy along with him on a missionary journey. Paul knew that they would be relating to Jewish people. Timothy, however, had a Gentile Greek father and a Jewish mother. And his Greek father had never circumcised Timothy as a sign that Timothy was a Hebrew. So the Hebrews, the Jewish people knew this. They would not allow Timothy into the synagogue. They're not going to listen to a word Timothy has to say about Jesus being the Messiah. Who do you think you are? Gentile telling us Jews what our Old Testament scriptures believe. So you know what Paul did? Paul circumcised Timothy. And said, they're never going to let you in, buddy. I'd have said, well, I'll just stand outside, you know. I'll, just, I'll pray for you, you know. But as a young man... Timothy was circumcised by Paul. Why? Now remember, this is the same Apostle Paul who says and goes to great lengths in the book of Galatians in the letter he wrote to the churches of Galatia that circumcision, this fleshly rite of the Hebrew people or uncircumcision, so whether you are or aren't as a Hebrew, doesn't do anything. It's not going to save you. It's not going to change your relationship with God. You're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Why then would Paul do it if he doesn't believe that it makes a difference in a person's relationship with God? Only to relate to the Jewish people so that he could take down one more barrier that would keep them from hearing the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Many years ago, I conducted a funeral right here for a beautiful lady who passed away of breast cancer. In fact, I had conducted her mother's funeral. Her mother was a member of our church. And it was only at the funeral of her mother, our church member, that I met the daughter. And after the service, the daughter came up to me and said, thank you for doing mom's service. She would have been proud. In fact, I want you to do my funeral service. Now, at that time, Lori was in her 40s. And I just met Lori. And I, I said, Lori, thank you. You're so gracious. But I sure pray that's a long ways off. And she says, you don't understand. I'm dying of breast cancer. We've just ended treatments. And... I know that uh, when my time comes, I want you to do my funeral. And can I bring my husband by to your office to plan my service? I'm just stunned. And I said, absolutely. Be happy for you to come by. I'm just devastated. I'm so sorry. I would never have known. She said, Ricky, my prayer over these last, this last uh, year and a half has been that I would not pass before my mother. She was battling cancer. I'm battling cancer. And I just couldn't imagine her having to uh, lose me. She came by a few weeks later to my office. We, we met. She said, now I need you to know my husband may not be very cordial to you. He was born and raised in Iran. He is a Muslim. He's never stepped foot in a church. He may or may not be polite. And I said, I'm a big boy. You know, it's okay. But inside I'm thinking, oh no. <laughs> we sat in my office. We talked about her spiritual journey. She confessed, yes, I'm a Christian, but we met in medical school. I became a registered nurse. He became a doctor. And because our religions were different, we just decided neither of us would practice our religions, and we wouldn't talk about religion. 
And she said, but I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. And I'm so sorry I've drifted from him and from the church. But I know he's always with me. And he finally spoke up and he said, he put his hand on her hand and he said, honor your faith. So then we started planning. What kind of music do you want? What do you want me to say in your eulogy? And I asked her, are there some scriptures you want me to use? And she said, whatever you did for mom was fine. And then he spoke up. He said, well, there is something I do not want to hear. It is something about the valley of a shadow of death. I don't want to hear it. It scares the heck. And he didn't say heck out of me. And I said, oh, that's the 23rd Psalm. It's not meant to scare you. It's meant to comfort you. He said, I don't want to hear it. I hear you ministers read that in the critical care unit where I work when people have died, and I don't want to hear that. And I said, well, thank you for telling me, because that's one of my go-to passages. I would have read it, but I will not out of uh, respect for you. Lori, Lori passed away about, I don't know, six, seven months later. We did her funeral right here. Her husband, Kazra, was here. Many of his family from Iran came, the women in their hijabs. Kazra's children, three teenagers, one in college, were here. I welcomed everyone, told them who I was, told them we often call this room a sanctuary, not because we believe God lives here after we leave. We believe God is with us wherever we are. I said, but I do hope, no matter what your religion, you feel safe here, welcomed here, and loved here. And we conducted a Christian funeral service for Lori Three weeks later, on a Sunday morning at 7 o'clock, my cell phone rang. It was Kazra. He said, I want to come to your church. Would I be welcome? I said, yes, you would. Be my honored guest. He said, I can't remember how to get from my house to yours. Lived in Deerwood Creek at the time. And so I gave him directions to the church. And then he started talking himself out of it. He said, well, I don't know. I've got to go into the, the hospital, and I'll be in my scrubs, and I don't want to be underdressed. I don't want to be a distraction and so I just won't come. Maybe another time. And I said, no, 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 Cosra, don't worry about how you look. You just come. We don't care how you dress. Now, this was the time, for some of you who were new, this was the time where I always wore a suit and tie. Our staff wore suits and ties. Choir was in robes. Uh, the deacons and ushers would be in suits and ties. But the majority of our church members did not wear suits and ties. And I said, Cosra, nobody cares. I hung up the phone with Cosra, not knowing if he was coming, but I heard God say to me clearly two things. I didn't hear him with an audible voice, but I felt it in my heart like nothing before. I heard God saying to me, you change your sermon and preach the 23rd Psalm, and you end in John chapter 10 where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then I heard God saying the second thing, and take your towel. It'll make Cosra feel more comfortable. If he sees you without a tie, maybe he won't feel as uncomfortable the way he is dressed. So that's what I did that morning. We had two services at the time, not three. I preached the first service for the first time in my ministry on a Sunday morning without a tie on. And was woefully criticized after the service by a handful of senior adults. I was told I did a disservice to God, that I was leading our church astray, that if I were going to see the President of the United States, I would not look as ratty as I did this morning. Now, you need to know what I was wearing. I was wearing slacks, a button-up dress shirt, and a sport coat. I just didn't have a tie on. But people were highly offended. I tried to explain why I took my tie off, because I've got a friend who's coming today, and he doesn't know Jesus He's never heard the gospel other than the funeral of his wife. And I don't want him to feel awkward like he's underdressed and we're all dressed better than he is. So I'd rather him feel comfortable. But that just seemed to go in one ear and out the other. It was a drive-by. You know, they and then go. They didn't really want to hear 
my reasoning. Kosra came to the second service, came in late. The service has already started. He sat on the back row. I can't tell who's sitting back there on the back row, but right where you guys are, the lights are shining. But he sat right where you guys are. And then I knew he would be the first one out the door after the service. So I called on someone else to lead in the closing prayer, and I made my way to the back door. And sure enough, as soon as the amen was said, he was the first one at the door. And there I was to greet him. He hugged me, kissed me on the cheek, and with tears running down his cheeks, he said, I love you. And I thank you for what you and this church have done for my family. He said, I didn't understand a lot of what you were talking about this morning, but could we talk a little more later? I said, yes, we can. I'd be honored to talk to you more about what I preached on today. The next thing that man said to me, because he had his hands on me where he'd embraced me, he, he had his hands on my shoulders, he, he kind of pushed me back a little and he looked at me and he said, I'm so glad you weren't dressed up. I felt so underdressed today. Me taking a tie off made him feel a little more comfortable so he could hear what was really important. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Bible says nothing about suits and ties. <gasps> it's not in there. The Bible says nothing about how we dress other than be modest. That's all the Bible says about how we dress. Just be modest. That's why I don't wear Speedos on Sunday. I just I want to be modest. I wish I could end this story and say, and Kazra came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. He is not yet. But I will tell you this. If I text him even now and say, Kazra, I'm on the way to check on a church member at the hospital. Are you there? He will text me back, yes or no. And he says, if you're there, let me know. I want to come down and greet you. He'll come down and introduce me to people as his pastor. A Muslim. My friend. If Paul was willing to circumcise Timothy, I don't have a problem taking a towel off. <laughs> he goes on. He says um, in verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Now he's talking about Gentiles. Jewish people have the law of Moses. They observe the kosher dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, all that. But now he's talking about those outside the law, talking about the Gentiles. And he says, then I become as one outside the law. I, I, when I go and hang out with my Gentile brethren, if they, if they offer me a pork chop dinner, I'm going to eat it. Because I'm with my Gentile friends. Now, I would never do it with my Jewish friends because it would offend them. But when I'm with Gentiles, I don't worry about all that stuff because that doesn't save you anyway. And, and he's quick again to add parenthetically, not being outside the law of God but under the law of Christ. He said, I'm not sinning in order to make them like me so that they can relate to me and uh, hear more about Jesus. I'm not going to snort a, coke, a line of coke just so that my, my friends addicted to cocaine will like me and hear the gospel. No, no, no. That's not what he's doing. What he is saying, though, is in these neutral ways, these, these ways that aren't biblical or unbiblical, it's just life, I'm going to just hang out with them and relate to them in ways they can understand, but I'm going to let the law of Christ guide me. The law of Christ is you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's what's going to motivate me in what I do. And why am I doing it? That I might win those outside the law. I'm just going to relate to my neighbor. Just going to be a good neighbor to them. And then he says in verse 22, To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. When he talks about the weak, he's talking about those who have a weak conscience. They're Christians, but they think there's certain things a Christian ought not to do. 
And other Christians who have read their Bible or have a stronger conscience say, there's nothing biblical or unbiblical, scriptural or unscriptural about this matter. In Corinth, it was the issue of whether you could or could not, as a Christian, eat meat that you bought at the marketplace, which had previously been offered in a pagan temple. What the temples would do is they would offer this meat and offer up this cow, this bull, you know, to their pagan god. Then they would take the meat out and sell it in the marketplace. And strong Christians said, that's just a Delmonico steak. That's all it is. Sure, I'm free to eat that. But other Christians who had a weak conscience said, you can't eat that. You know where that came from? And so Paul says, when I'm hanging out with them, I just won't eat it. Because I love them and I'm just trying to influence them. Not here to save them, but to uh, help them grow in their relationship. So whether it's with Jews or with Gentiles, or with weak believers, Paul adjusted his lifestyle in non-sinful ways to relate to them and to reach them with the gospel of Jesus. This is what missionaries have always done. And why, if we celebrate what missionaries do overseas, are we not willing to do it ourselves right here at home? I don't know about you, but I don't, as an adult, I don't often sit down and take crayons and paper and color. Does that shock you? I don't often do that, Rob. You, you kind of thought I did, didn't you? But you know what? In Ecuador, I got down on my hands and knees on a dirty floor with little preschoolers, and we took paper, and we took broken crayons, and we colored like nobody's business. <laughs> and I loved every minute of it. This one time we're sitting there coloring, this beautiful little Ecuadorian preschooler sitting next to me. She's coloring. She'll look up and smile. And she'd color some more and look up and smile. And at one point, and I don't speak Spanish, so at one point she, she colored, she looks up and smiles, and then she reaches up her finger and she touches me here at the part of my hair. <laughs> and she said something. And about the time the translator heard her and she started laughing, she said, oh, she just touched your forehead and said, no hair, no hair. <laughs> So she and I became bus buds. <laughs> Do you know why I got on my hands and knees in color with her and with the other little children? Why Tamara did it while others on our team did it? It's not because I want to be a preschooler, although some days that sounds good when bills come due. I wanted to relate to her on her level so that I could tell her about the God who loves her and Jesus who died for her in a way that she would relate to. I could have read from the Greek New Testament. I could have preached a 45-minute sermon. I could have wore a suit and tie. And she would never have related to me. But getting down on the floor with her. And coloring with her. And smiling at her. Helped her to relax and hear the great message. That we shared with them about Jesus. I don't always sit crisscross applesauce, but when I do, it is so I can tell somebody about Jesus. Fort Caroline Baptist Church, we are willing to adjust whatever we have to adjust in non-sinful ways to relate the gospel to our changing culture. Whether it's music, whether it's attire from the staff, whether it's the speech and how we talk about things around the church, we will adjust our methods without ever compromising the message. And then number three, Paul says, I will anticipate results. When I do this, I expect God 
to change lives. When I abandon my rights and care more about other people than I do myself, when I adjust my methods so that I can take the same message that everyone needs to hear and I preach it and share it and relate it in a way that each person can relate to, then I can anticipate results. He says in verse 23, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. The them are the people who hear the gospel and who believe it and who become followers of Jesus themselves. Paul says, this is the gospel. This is the good news. The gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, rose from the dead on the third day. That's the gospel. And if you put your faith in him, you can be forgiven of your sin. And Paul says, when people do that, we all share in its blessings. Paul says, there will be people in heaven because I went and gave them the gospel in a way they could understand Aren't you grateful for Christians who've done that in centuries past so that we today have the gospel in a way that we can understand? Aren't you glad you didn't have to learn Hebrew or Greek or Latin to have a Bible that you can understand? Aren't you glad that people like Wycliffe and Tyndall gave their lives so that you could have an English Bible? Aren't you grateful that this church said we care more about your soul and you understanding how much God loves you than we do our personal preferences or how church has always been done? We don't care about that stuff. We care about the gospel. And listen, friend, you should be willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person for Jesus, and you should be willing to support this church as we are going to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person for Jesus. Who are you seeking to influence and win to faith in Jesus Christ? What are you doing to win someone to faith in Jesus? How have you given up your personal preferences to reach people for Jesus? Are you helping or hindering our church in reaching this generation with the life-changing gospel of Jesus? Do you see our church more as a cruise ship or a rescue ship? Friend, I pray this morning, based on the authority of God's word, you will make the commitment I'm willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning. And I'm willing to support my church when it does whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is biblical. This is spiritual. This is being like Jesus. And you talk about culturally relevant. Jesus is our supreme example. He is God. And yet he stepped out of eternity became man so that he could flesh out who God is and what God is like for every one of us. He came looking like us, living like us, suffering like us, laughing like us, fellowshipping like us, speaking like us. Jesus came to rescue and he came to save and he's asked us to do the same. If we commit to this strategy, then more people than ever before will come to faith in Jesus Christ. If we commit to this strategy, then our church will be more united than ever before. If we commit to this strategy, then we will each share in the blessing of seeing people come to faith in Jesus Christ. If we commit to this strategy, then you will help us reach your family member, your friend, your neighbor, your co-worker, a little girl in Puerto Rico, a little boy in Ecuador, an orphanage in Haiti. Missionaries all over the world that we've never laid eyes on, but we send $200,000 a year to help fund. 
We will all get to heaven one day and we will rejoice and share in the blessings of the gospel with everyone that we've had the opportunity to influence with the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in the stillness of this moment, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how we have learned that we should be willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person with the gospel of Jesus. Jesus was willing. He even died and gave his life on a cross. The sinless, spotless Son of God dying for us. Help us to abandon our rights. Help us to adjust our methods while never changing the message. And let us by faith anticipate that many souls will be saved as they hear this good news and become followers of Jesus. And with your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, will you make that commitment? Will you say to God, God, today I commit, or God, I recommit to being willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning. And I recommit to supporting my church as we are willing to do whatever it takes short of sinning to reach one more person with the good news that Jesus loves them. And friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, maybe if you can't make that commitment, you need to have the freedom from your pastor to know that I love you and I'm humbled to be your pastor. But I will not continue to have arguments and debates with people about methods at the expense of men and women who need Jesus. There are many good churches in our community that would love to have you. But if you can't be supportive of our desire to reach as many as we can for Jesus, then maybe God's calling you somewhere else. But I believe you want to share in the blessing of the gospel. I believe you want to be a part of seeing men and women and boys and girls like never before come to faith in Jesus. And friend, there are more lost people in this community than ever before. Let's join hearts and hands and let's reach them. Heavenly Father, we commit ourselves together and we commit ourselves to you. If there's anyone in this room today, God, who has never received Jesus, let this be the moment for them today. They place their faith in Christ and Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sin and the gift of eternal life. It's in his name we pray and all of God's people said.